Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is a Lip Media Podcast. Content discussed on this podcast may be triggering for some individuals. So if you feel like today you can't quite handle it, that's totally fine. You can press pause and come back another day. Remember, we're always going to be here. And if you need immediate help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome to season two of If You Don't Mind. <laughs> um, I am Madeline Jerrington. I am your host and I am super stoked that we're back for round two. Um, quite honestly, I didn't think that we would get past five episodes um, on season one, but we did and that's fantastic. And I'm super, yeah, super excited that we get to do this again. There's a few things that I'd like to update you all on. Um, I've gone back to uni, which is very exciting. I'm doing a diploma in audio production, so I can hopefully make this my full-time job one day. Um, and secondly, something very exciting, if you don't mind, has been picked up by a podcast network. Ooh, uh, Lip Media is the name of the podcast network, and it basically supports podcasts that are made by women and people from the queer community. A really, really cool outlet for creativity, and I'm so excited to be a part of it. Uh, it's it's great to be part of, yeah, the community. Um, so what's on for episode one of season two? Well, we get to listen to a really cool interview I did with the lovely Rose. Rose is very intellectual and deep thinking and reflective, and you can tell in the way she answers questions that she's been doing a lot of thinking. In this interview, we talk about Rose's experiences with endometriosis and therefore chronic pain and how that's kind of intersected with her own experiences of mental illness. We had a really interesting chat about how there are some great campaigns out there to raise awareness and and tackle stigma, but unfortunately, there's not a lot backing it up structurally. And I think it's something that you'll all enjoy listening to. It's a little bit more of a intellectual discussion, I think. Rose is also super funny, so that's really <laughs> it, it. Makes it it's it's still super engaging at the same time. Um, just a little bit of a content warning, as per usual. We do talk about uh, depression. We mention suicide. There is also a story of a medical procedure that might make you feel a bit squeamish. So if you are not up for that today, that is fine. You can come back whenever you're ready. Um, well, let's get started. It's episode one of season two with Rose. I hope you enjoy it. Um, well, thank you for coming on the show. No, thank you. And being the first guest of 2020. Thank you. I for- made it. Finally. <laughs> you did. Um, I wanted to kind of start off the show by just asking you who you are, what you're about. You can answer that in any way you like. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my name is Rose. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. 
I'm 25. I am working at the moment at a social work organisation and my job is to uh, do the front desk stuff but also take intake. So I go through what's happening with them and then pass it on to caseworkers and stuff. Yeah, before that I did um, some disability work. So I was a support worker for a bit, which I loved as well. But because I can't drive, it was difficult to find consistent work. I was doing it like freelance, which I really loved, but I didn't know what day I was working every week. Yeah, and I was really lucky to get this job. It's really amazing. So, yeah. Awesome. I also can't drive. Yeah, I feel like the people I vibe with the most also can't (laughs) drive. It's like a special, like, It's a special club. Why can't you drive? Um, I've just never gotten around I to it, slash I'm terrified. Really not. Well, I do know. I just, I'm from like a small-ish coastal town where it was the number one thing you did. You yeah. turn 16, you immediately get your license. Yes. I just miss that. I don't know why. Um, I just turned 16 and was like, just guess I won't. And then about a year later, I went for my L's and didn't study because... That it's boring. Yeah. And everyone was like, it's super easy. Like, it's just really um, straightforward. Failed three times um, no, in a row. Buddy. And then was just like, well, that's that's not the life for me. That's I'm done. I'm not gonna... meant to be a driver. Yeah. Um, and then when I finally got it, I was already living out of home, so I didn't have anyone to teach to me. teach you, um, of course. Yeah. I went, I've, I've got about three hours um on my L's, but I'm now 25, so I don't need the yes, 120 hours. I don't need it but either. I do know, I do need to learn how to drive, um, <laughs> which is like the main part of the main part of it, which I haven't managed. I think the last time my parents took me, my mum took me to teach me, if there was ever a car approaching, I would just go off the road, which is oh, not an effective tactic. No, I don't um, think moving forward that would be a no, very good idea. Yeah, so um, it's something I'm working on. <laughs> but, yeah. I feel like it's – okay, I don't understand how people are so chill about getting into a car no, and just going for a I drive. Don't understand it all. I don't understand the mentality of getting in a car – and knowing that at any point during that day, you could accidentally you kill die. someone yep. or you you could be killed. Yeah. That is mind-boggling to me. to me. I don't have any spatial awareness either. So Same. when I'm in a car, I'm like, I need, like, I need a radar. Yes. I need, like, beeping. Like, yes. I, I don't, I can't process it. I no. think now knowing that I have ADHD, it makes a lot of sense that it's so overwhelming because you have to concentrate on so many different things yeah. at once. And I, like, just literally don't have that... Um, organ in my brain so um that does make it difficult but it is something that I would like to achieve (laughs) at some point it's fine we'll get there I think as long as okay in my mind I'm like okay if I end up having children if I can just get it before then I'm sweet because I do worry I'm like what if one time I had to take my child somewhere or something Mm. so I do worry about that but at the same time fuck it if people think I'm weird I'd work through that by just like accepting that i might not have children yeah. you know like if that's if that if it means I don't I, have to I drive. remember having that thought and just being like okay I'm just gonna process now <laughs> that I can maybe live without children because I'm not sure when I'm gonna action this um skill so oh I love yeah. that planning our children based on whether we yeah. love a drive that's yeah that's fantastic um I was first introduced to your yourself when um my friend so we've got a mutual friend Drew who was mm-hmm. on season one uh, I think she maybe shared an article you'd written um forgive me I can't remember where it was published was it the the the, the, the Sydney Morning Herald I don't really understand it was I was uh, paid by the Sydney Morning Herald um that's but it, it also was in a, a Brisbane something yes I think they um, like own other ones yeah. and it's kind of just so like distributed okay cool up. um yeah but yeah brisbane something 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 i don't know beautiful but yeah and it was an article um about your experiences with uh basically being diagnosed with endometriosis yeah i remember reading it and being like fucking hell this lady is so inspirational and amazing sure. because i think a lot of us have no true understanding of what it is like to live with chronic pain. Mm. I think we're all, you're like, 
everybody can recount a few times in their life when they've experienced, you know, pretty intense pain. But I think what a lot of us don't understand is what it's like to live with that every single day. I think having you on the show is sick because I feel like more people need to know about living with chronic illness and chronic pain. So I guess my first question for you is when did this all start? Like how old were you when, when your symptoms kicked off? So when I got my period, just immediately. Hmm. Um, but it's a really tricky one because it's painful, but you have no like context for that. And, you know, you get your period and you're like, wow, um, this is pretty fucked up. And everyone's like, yep, it is. Welcome. And so I think I didn't really understand because no one talks about it either. It's not like you learn about periods and they're like, oh, by the way, like hmm. if it feels this bad, hmm. it's not, uh, it's not right. And by the time I had started, like I got a bit older and started to be like, actually, no, like I think that this is uh, not uh, correct. Yeah, no. <laughs> I was going to doctors and the way that doctors see like young women presenting with pain, especially if it's like, well, yeah, periods are painful. Yeah. So um, I didn't have the language to really advocate for myself the severity of it but also I couldn't I couldn't prove it so I found it really difficult to work up the yeah work up the courage to go to a doctor and be like hey this is exactly how I'm feeling and I can confidently say it's worse than others because you can't prove that no and when I first um yeah started really trying to push it all the responses were like very much like a lot of it was about being young like it can't be that bad like it can't be endometriosis because like it's women in their 30s or that experience the level of pain that you're describing Mm. and so after a while I just stopped because it was pointless like I would go work myself up to have this conversation and then it would just be like, no, like it's in your head. And then also I did have mental health stuff that I was dealing with at the same time. Mm. And as soon as a doctor sees that, they're like, oh, cool. Well, that's why. That's why it's in your brain. You're literally mental. So like this is really mental and yeah, it's in your head. It's that classic like hysterical woman kind of narrative. Yeah, yeah. And so it was either you're too young for it to be as bad as you're describing or if it is what you're describing I don't have enough knowledge about treating that or if I do the only option is a surgery because you can't actually get a formal diagnosis Mm. of endometriosis until you have this laparoscopy <laughs> laparoscopy Lapro- yeah like the 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 one they do with your appendix but and they, they put it through your stomach yeah yep okay the way that endometriosis grows is it's like lining but it's not visible on ultrasounds unless you have like a cyst and stuff and i never did when mm. they would examine me so you can't prove it at all doctors mm. have to commit to trusting and booking in for a surgery that's kind of intense based on your expression of your pain alone Mm -hmm. and if you're a young person a young woman and especially someone who has a diagnosed mental illness they're like why would I why would I take that risk like that it's so much easier to just say you know like it's probably not and even if it is um there's not you can't cure endometriosis so they were kind of like what so we trust that you do have it we book you in for this surgery then we find it and then what do we do yeah Yeah. I think a lot of doctors really don't understand with chronic health things how meaningful a diagnosis can be yes I agree um and really don't have their heads around that so um because I am so like organized I would go in with like a list of all the things that all the symptoms, all the things I was experiencing and really lay it out on the table. Mm. And they would be really intimidated that, by that. Like, and a lot of questions about like, well, why, why do you want to have this bad thing? <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why are you telling me my job? And so I went really badly. Um, 
Yeah. Did you ever have a GP? Did you ever like go to a GP and then and they respond with that positively? No. Oh, that's not fair. Um, when the surgeon that I went to who uh, gave me the surgery, yeah, it's it's more when I finally find someone who does take it seriously. I don't even have to do that because they don't even need me to prove it. I can just say what I'm experiencing and they don't want to see all the like documentation yeah. I've done of myself because yeah. if they need to see that, then they don't really take it very seriously anyway. Mm. So I was thinking I was doing the right thing and really I was putting people off more because they were like, I- I'm not going to take any of this seriously because that's all you talking yeah. about how you feel and my job as a doctor is not that. It's I decide like what yes. you're feeling. Yes. And so, yeah, that didn't go very well. But I yeah. know people who've done that though, like – even myself, like when I was first sick and refused to believe that it was a mental thing, mm. I wrote down like this huge list of all the symptoms I was experiencing and doctors would look at it and be like, that's, well, that's because of this, this is because yeah. of that. Like they could just explain it away. Yeah. And they just, they're also quite time poor to be fair. Yeah. Um, so they probably, most of them don't have the time to listen to you talk to about half an hour, like about your symptoms, but yeah, so many of them were just so off-put by it. Yeah. And I was like, well, who like why why would I trust you to listen to me and to properly, you know, check me over if that's never happened to me before? Like, I feel like it makes more sense for me to come in with what I've experienced and then that's going to help you make your diagnosis. Yeah. Like I'm fucking helping you. And sometimes I don't even under- like I understand that like a big power imbalance between a doctor and a patient. Yeah. But sometimes it doesn't even really make logical sense in my mind. Like why would someone come to you like clearly presenting in distress and not doing well, has done all this work and research and has waited months to get into you and has paid heaps. Mm. Why would you do that unless it was really serious? But I found often doing that and and it didn't matter that if you really thought about it, it doesn't make any sense for someone to put themselves through that no. and put in that much work unless it was real. All doctors see is like, this person's telling me what to do and that's not how this works. Like mm. I tell you what I think based on this 10 minute interaction with you. And yeah, just, it doesn't go down well. No, and to hear that, like to have to do that time and time again and not get anywhere must be so like so disappointing yeah so I would go every like six months have the same experience get really upset and be like fuck it I'll just deal like I can't do that again and then I'd get to the point and be like no like it's actually irresponsible for me to not be trying to sort this out because it's like really affecting my life and Mm. it's affecting people around me and so then I would do it again and have the same experience and just like do it over and over and over again. The last person I saw before I finally um, saw a surgeon that um, decided to do the surgery Mm. was this um, woman and every time I would go to her, she would have forgotten what what I'd said last time. Oh, I hate that. So she would make me do it again and every time I would be really clear and we'd start all over again. It was like $300 an appointment and every time we would get to the end and she'd be like, and they always ask questions. I don't know if it's because, like, I also had have clinical depression and stuff like that. No, it's fine. <laughs> that they just um, want to focus on that or that there's – I think it's both – or that as soon as someone with a uterus comes in and is like, <laughs> my uterus hurts, they're like, oh, her brain's fucked or – yeah. Yeah. So – um, yeah, I would go in, explain all these symptoms, and then she would be like, sorry, I just want to stop you for a moment. Um, so are you in a relationship at the moment? Or like, how's your mental health? And I would, and I'm pretty like, I'm pretty confrontational. So I would say like, that's not relevant. No. And they would, she would ask lots of questions about like my mental health and in a way that was very clear that she was just being like, are you sure that you're just not crazy? Like, yeah, not even that really you're kind of your head. Mm. hiding that that was her mm. perspective. And I would, I would just cut it off. I would just be like, I have a psychologist and a psychiatrist. It's not your job. Like, yeah. I don't want to talk about it. 
The last time I saw her, I got, I don't want to do this surgery. Um, you're young, so even if it is endometriosis, it can't have progressed bad enough to have had um, an effect that would like warrant surgery and, you know, cutting it out or whatever because it can't have progressed that far anyway. So you're mm. kind of just putting yourself through a surgery for nothing. But I want to manage it, so I want you to get a marina. And I hadn't been on birth control for a while because it fucked me up mentally. Yeah. And so I got this marina in. I arrived. She was late. We go in to put the marina in. A marina is an IUD thing that shoots up into your cervix. Sounds really, really fun. Yeah, it's like a torpedo thing. It comes in this huge box. So I'm like in the chair, yeah, legs up, whatever. She, some sometimes they do it under anaesthetic, but I was like, well, it's not going to hurt more than it hurts already, yeah. And I don't want to pay extra money for the anaesthetic, so just like put like, it up let's there, just go. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm like upside down. <laughs> she shoots this like pain thing, like. Some pain medication. Like, like a local anesthetic or something. Yeah. Yes. It was a local anesthetic, but into my vagina. So mm. I'm upside down. She's like, oh, by the way, that's going to run straight to your heart. So you're probably going to feel like you're having a panic attack. Great. And I was like, cool. So I'm upside down, like having a panic attack with like a syringe in my uterus. And then she's silent. She puts it in. It's really painful, but I was just like, whatever. Yeah. It's always painful. And then what happens with the IUD, it has to be changed every three or five years or whatever. So they a string, there's a string mm-hmm. that comes out. Mm-hmm. And you cut the string so you're not just like walking around with like a fucking string hanging out of your vagina. No, that would not be great. No. So she cuts the string and I like feel something happen. And I like look down, up, whatever. I was out of it. And I just look down to her. She's hyperventilating. She is. Yeah. So I'm like, um, is everything okay down there? And she's like, I've just made a terrible mistake. <laughs> she's like a se- the senior gynecologist at RPA or some shit. Oh. She's like, I've just made a mistake that I teach my students. It's like the number one most amateur mistake you can make doing this um, procedure. Procedure. Um, I hell. teach this to students every day not to do this, and I can't believe it. I just did it. So she'd cut the string with scissors and then instead of cutting the string then opening the scissors back up and retrieving her hand she's just like she just ripped it out again so she ripped it out and threw it across the floor um and she starts freaking out how painful was that for you yeah it wasn't great no Um, i can did you did yeah oh my god and so you're upside down so i'm upside down she starts she starts having a panic attack because she's like, this has never happened before. And I was like, good. Like, of course it happens to me. I'm glad. Great. Great. Um, then I was like, okay, well, what are our options? Like, let's just do it again. I love how you're taking control of the situation. Escalating the situation. (laughs) Fucking hell. And then, so I'm like, just go get another marina, like in your cupboards of your gynecological devices, get another one. Let's do it again. Like I'm here. I'm upside down. Like, I've got anesthetic in my cervix. Like, go, go, this go. This is the time. Like, it's go time. Yeah. Like, I'm ready. I can cop it again. She starts, like, <laughs> running around and going through the cupboards. She opens a cup She and then she just comes back to me and she's like, I've made another mistake. And I was like, good, 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 good. Um, and she goes, I forgot to restock the marinas. So you're going to have to hold this scap. So she, like, guides my hands. Sorry, wait, wait, wait. What? So there's no more marinas in her office. Yes. She forgot to restock them. And so, so she's going to get you to hold open your... Yeah, so I'm holding the device that is... Like the speculum? My, this, yeah, the oh, speculum. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so she's like, you need to hold this. I'm going to go buy one for you, which is... And she goes, <laughs> which is illegal because I need to first write a referral and you need to get it. But... um, And I was like but this isn't my fault and I'm upside down holding the speculum. So, like, this is, this it's, is the, the thing that you need to action currently. So she, like, runs out of the room, <laughs> runs, like, out of the hospital to a chemist, buys it. So I'm just upside down um, 
holding my vagina open for 10 minutes, comes back and she's like, okay, I've got one. Starts explaining to me like how to go back. And I was like, "Mm -mm, we're just going to, we're just going to do this. Karen, like, please just do it. I'm just, I'm um, completely speechless. <laughs> also, this is classic. This is completely off track. No, it's fine. I love it. Anything. This is why I love the show. This is just like a no, no, no. It's good. Just a little trauma anecdote. <laughs> vagina Diaries, and then so she <laughs> is like, okay, we're ready to go again. Like, is it painful? And I was like, yes, but like, please do it. Like, go. Yeah. So she does it again, and then I leave. She goes, okay, um, here's the referral for um, you've got to take this down to this chemist and give them the referral so they have the, like, legal process or whatever and gets her wallet out and gives me um, the money to pay for it, like gives me, like, $60 or something because, like, I've already paid for mine and brought it and mm. she threw it across the floor. So she gives me money and I'm like, what do I, like, do I come back and give you the change? And she's like, no, just keep it, um, buy a Christmas present. <laughs> and I was like, what? Merry okay. Christmas to me. Yeah. Fuck it. But yeah, so then that was fine. And did she say sorry? Was no, there she an was apology? Just like, she was just like freaking out. So yeah. I just went okay. and paid for it and then like kept the $30 and went and bought a hand cream in ASOP. <laughs> um, but then, so that was fine and it was meant to if it was meant to really hurt like if your body was meant to reject it you it was meant to immediately hurt like in the first 2 weeks and I was yeah. fine so I was like wow what a time but like I've done something like it's working whatever and then like a month later or like 3 weeks later it just I I got my period which is meant to be not as painful and it was fucked like I couldn't move I couldn't do anything and I was in bed for like six weeks and I was calling her and it was over Christmas and I was calling her being like there's something wrong like you need to take this out and she was like no like it can hurt for up to like three months to six months like you've just got to wait it out and I was like ah no like she refused me to do it she made me wait six weeks so I was just like in bed like on painkillers for six weeks it was really really fucked up and then I went back in and I walked in and she'd forgotten like kind of the whole scenario again already and I sit down and she's like oh so it's been really painful and I was like yeah yep like really excruciating and she goes have you tried um Panadol and Nurofen taking them together and I just like went silent (laughs) And she was like, well, have you tried? And I was like, you know what? Um, you're going to take this out now. We're not going to speak for the rest of this appointment. Um, and then I'm going to never see you again um, because you're terrible at this. And she just like freaked out. And I'm just like on the table, like <laughs> silently crying. And I just like walked out and was like, cool, we're back to, we're back to the start again. Yeah, shit. And then fast forward, I found I did all this research online found this like group that had all this information on what surgeons were able to do like one were more open and like believed your pain and also did a surgery that was like the most recent technology or whatever that actually could help you like it cut it out instead of just opening it up and Mm. being like yep you're fucked and then closing you up again um, and so I, I booked in for that and then went to pay for it and it was like $16,300. And, oh um, my God. And like I was out like, of pocket. Yeah. So I went afterwards, I like had this amazing experience. Like I went in, I was like, I think I might just be crazy. Like yeah. I've done it. Like I don't even, like I was so done by that point. Mm. And he was like, you know what, you don't have to explain anything. Like, it sounds exactly like endo. I don't think any of the people you've seen before had any expertise in it and but don't like to say that. So they were just kind of covering that by being like, I've decided I don't because I'm a professional and you're not, go home. And so that was like a, like it was amazing experience. And I walked out and was like, okay, like I need a book in this surgery. What's it going to, like how much is it going to cost and like how does it work? She just started like tallying up all these costs and again I just started silently crying and she was like what what do you what do you mean and I was like 
what what the fuck like how how are you like what and she was like yeah but like with private health insurance like it'll be like half of that and I was like I don't have private health insurance yeah why does everybody assume we do yeah and she was like oh well um it's nice knowing you like it well not really but it's like you can go on the wait list for the public one which will be two years and I was like I'll die like I'll die but within that time um (laughs) but anyway what ended up happening was his understudy did it I between that finding out how much it was going to cost, had a complete mental breakdown, went to a psych ward, had a really good doctor who wrote a letter being like, if you don't push this surgery forward and, like, make it less expensive, like, Rose will kill herself, so, like, get your shit together. And she just completely put it through Medicare, didn't charge me anything. Um, and, yeah, that wow. was the that was the end of the story. But when I woke up in the hospital, I'd completely psyched myself into it being nothing like I was like you like I have to prepare myself for the fact that like this has just been I don't know a manifestation of being mentally ill which like happens yeah like somatic pain is yeah yeah, as a thing um and I really psyched myself into it and I was like at least I haven't paid for this so I'm not waking up being like wow I just spent 16 grand to learn that I'm more fucked in the head than I thought I was cool and I woke up and they were, like, explaining, like, what they'd found. And I was like, wait, what? Like, it's actually endo. And they were like, yeah, yep, like, in a big way. And I made them, like, write a, like, oh. note and sign it and give me all the pictures. And I keep them under my bed. So when I'm, like, in heaps of pain and I'm, like, no, nah, like, I'm just I'm just being stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, get them out and look at them. And I'm like, no, nah, it's fucked in there. Like, it's fine, Rose. Like, you're actually. You're in pain. Real. Yeah. Holy. Yeah. Crap. I mean, I have so many questions. Um, I don't really know where to start, but what, what was it like to have that resolution? Like, did it, did it alleviate? I mean, obviously it doesn't take away the pain. Yeah. But it, did it just make you feel like vindicated? Like, did you feel like for the first time you, you were in control of your health? I'd stopped trusting myself. And when you stop, and when you're going to people who are the ex- meant to be the experts in mm. fixing something for you or validating what you're experiencing, and they're saying, all my time and experience yeah. tells me that you're making this up and you're doing that again and again and again and again all the time for like 10 years, it affects the way you trust yourself in every aspect. Like I wasn't very good at like checking in with how I was feeling or just my confidence in so many areas because I was like well the most intense like feeling that I experience apparently isn't real so how can I and I'm being told that by the people who measure that experience (laughs) so like it made me just really not good at looking after my health in whatever other area but also being able to like validate when I wasn't feeling good because I had no I had no ability to know that it was real hmm. and it wasn't just like I was feeling not good and then just didn't believe it because I like didn't back myself I was like actively being told again and again and again all the time by people that it wasn't true and I think like I just got lucky in that I got a trifecta of mentally ill physically chronically ill and have a neurological disorder but like it affected my ability to look after myself because I couldn't take a day off work because I couldn't confidently say hey I need to take this day off work because I feel this bad Mm. because of this thing I have I would just have to be like I feel bad I think I should take a day off because I can't do my job but I might have to take next week. Like there was no, like I had no ability to do things for myself, to look after myself because I had no way to confirm that what I was feeling was real. And I think I was, I had like separate mental health things that pre-existed the real pointy end of the pain and chronic health stuff as well. But yeah, they all 
they all affect each other and it just it just made everything worse because mm. and as well like all the things converge so like big symptom of ADHD is not is not is being super distracted not being able to like being really impulsive with your like emotions and your ability to stay on track being in chronic pain makes your ability to concentrate bad being depressed makes like so it was like all linked but I had no idea what was what yeah so yeah just made it very difficult to look after myself and trust myself in anything because like all the evidence was stacked against you yeah it was yeah. saying that it was yeah hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So I guess... Ma, I want to backtrack a little bit. So you've you've kind yeah, of mentioned have to do a lot of it. <laughs> no, I don't like telling. I think the thing is with storytelling, it doesn't have to be linear. People yeah. don't know that or don't think about it. But sometimes it's nice to kind of go back and forth. But yeah, what I wanted to ask was obviously before the pain and before those symptoms came, um, was that when you were kind of first experiencing clinical depression? And I think like I've always been. I think what maybe my parents would describe as an intense child. And I think that, I think that was mostly like, and my depression came from having pretty intense ADHD and that not being noted. So, Mm. and because I really actively try and look after myself when I was getting, like my mental health was getting worse and worse. I was like going to therapy all the time. Like I was doing, I was really trying to figure it out hmm. and never got anywhere. And so then you kind of get to a point of being like, I, no one can tell me that like things are going to get better or whatever, because I've done every single thing you're meant to do and it doesn't. So, and that was all because I wasn't being treated correctly because no one was understanding the things that were making me depressed, which was not being able to, like, be engaged at school, not being able to finish a degree because I couldn't concentrate for long enough to do an essay. Yes. And it was all really frustrating to me because I would go, again, to therapists or whatever and say things like, I can't, I know I'm smart. Hmm. I know that I'm really good at the things that I'm trying to do. And I'm studying things that I'm really passionate about, but I cannot do them. And then the therapist would be like, but you can't do them because you don't believe in yourself. And I'd be like, no, I do. Like Like I think I'm I'm hot shit. Yeah. (laughs) And I would say that and they'd be like no, like, you actually just hate yourself. And I'd be like, <laughs> Fucking hell. no, like, I n- really know myself so well. Like, I know that I'm good at stuff. And I also know that in 
And that's also grounded in reality. Like when I am able to do something, mm. I do really well. Mm. And so it's not just me being like, oh, I have a sense that if I was able to finish something, I would do well. Like, and I think that's why the ADHD was never picked up because I did well in school. I only did things that I was really interested in, which is a classic ADHD thing. You have no capacity to engage in anything that you aren't obsessed with. Wow, okay. Um, but when I was able to do something because I was really passionate about it or because I had a lot of help to be able to finish it on time, I would do really, really well. And so people were like, well, it's clearly not something that you can't do. Mm. You're just not doing it. And and the same thing, I would trip myself up in that I would go, like when I started reading about ADHD and being like, I think this is, I think this is it. Like I, like a couple of years ago, like two or three years ago, maybe when I came across it and was like, wow, this is all me. I did the same thing. I went with big lists, was like, this is what's happening. And doctors would be just be like, why are you so obsessed with that? And also, if you have the, and that's a whole another podcast, like the, the awareness around ADHD and especially in adults because we have like a very um, incorrect understanding of it and like how, how it presents and what it actually is. Yes. But um, I would get so invested in wanting to fix it, I would go with all of this stuff and they would kind of be like, well, if you were that fucked up that you couldn't, you feel like you can't do uni, you can't get a job, you can't keep a job, you can't maintain relationships, you wouldn't be here. Like, you wouldn't have made it to this office. And I'd be like, but I made it to this office with all of this information because if I don't, like, I'll just, like, I'll just die. <laughs> yeah. So, like, but I think people really expect young women to like they want you to come and just cry and be like this is what's happening with me tell me what it is and I'd go in and be like this shit is hectic these are all the things that I've noticed this is all the research I've done I'm pretty sure that this is something blah blah blah. and it's really uncomfortable for doctors both in like mental health and physical health they just see that and be like that's not if you're in the crisis that you're explaining, you wouldn't be able to state it this way. And I'm like, yeah, but like, because also because I'm me, like, this yeah. is how I continue to keep doing stuff and stay afloat. Mm. I try to figure this stuff out and then I'm bringing it to you, the person who can do something with it. But it wasn't the way that they like it to work. Like, I remember going to a psychologist again, like, the ADHD diagnosis was like a whole fucking ride. And I went to this specialist and it said that they did like adult ADHD stuff. And I went in again with like all this stuff and explaining all these things and she was just quiet. And then at the end she goes, why are you so obsessed with having ADHD? And I was like, um, I'm not. It's not a great thing to have because I can't change it. It's not yeah. mental health. It doesn't change. It's like a neurological disorder, something that I don't have in my brain, mm. um, which it's different from mental health. It's not – yeah, it's neurological. Yeah, it's not a mental illness. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, what, what do you mean? I'm just saying that I want to clear this because I need to keep going forward and figuring out because I'm not comfortable with just accepting that like life is this difficult for me to – exist and do like I I can't accept that so like I need you to listen to this and mm. rule it out or like investigate it and again was like well and it's a, a whole nother level with ADHD because people do um people want Ritalin so they all go and have done all this research and I was like but like I'm clearly not well like yeah I'm yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, it just doesn't go down well. And I just started crying and was like, I don't, but I need to have some sort of direction. I need someone to, like, investigate all these things because I've been going to therapy for 10 years and I've been doing everything and I know myself so well and no one believes that. No one thinks that 
this stuff is something that I'm not working on. Everyone just thinks that this is just me, like, not believing in myself. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to, like, actively work on this, but you don't like that approach. And um, it's so odd because, like, I feel like a lot of the time in the mental health space, like, we're wanting people to take action and take, I don't know, like, be be effective in their own treatment. But as soon as we say someone comes in and they're like, oh, actually, I think I have a good grasp of who I am and what I'm experiencing, it's like, no. Yeah. You're unwell. This is – like. I'm sure there are cases of that, but especially for women, like I feel like as soon as you come in and you're strong and you're confident and you're like, I am unwell, but I'm pretty sure it's because of this, yeah. this, this and this, it's just this immediate like, nah, yeah. you're wrong. And I don't, to be perfectly honest, I've never heard that from a man. I've never heard the same kind of thing. It just seems to be with women who are assertive about their own health and their own yeah. brains. And once I kind of got into it, and w- once this happened over and over and over again and it made me really depressed, I kind of got into experiencing it from, like, not just uh, how you're treated by doctors in terms of, like, how they enact their power and what mm. they've, like, absorbed from being in a position of power and how that can make them treat you. I realised how embedded it is in the entire thing. So, like, when I was suicidal and I took myself to hospital Mm. it was like we're busy like if you can prove that you're going to hurt yourself or someone else like within the next few hours we can do something about it but if not there's nothing we can do so it's very much like you need to come to us completely broken with no awareness of why how and just like flop yourself on the floor yeah and then we'll be like okay, we, well, we believe it because this person's completely incapacitated. Mm. But it makes no sense in the way we talk about it socially and that's why I get really frustrated because people are like, you need, you need to talk about these things openly, you need to think about why it is that you feel this way or like what could affect it because then if people take that on and they start doing that and they start really advocating for themselves and they start really... Um, being proactive and instead of just being like, oh, I Passive. feel, I feel yeah. really crap. I am just like, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Um, when people like get the balls up to go and tell someone that they're feeling really bad and you, it's not the response that we make it seem like it's going to be. Like mm. you don't go to and ask for help and they're like, wow, thank you for coming. Like, <laughs> yeah. welcome. Yes. They're like, yes. No, like we're, there, there's no capacity for us to be able to assist you with this. Um, so. And that is also to do with obviously funding and lack of resources. Yeah, like, absolutely. Obviously, it's like a structural thing. Yeah, I mean, for the most systemic. part. systemic. Yeah, for the most part, people don't want to turn you away, but there is literally nothing they can do unless yeah. you meet that criteria. So at least you're like, unless you're like catatonic. Yeah. And you can't actually, you're not, you don't have any awareness of what's happening. It's not like you're not on their radar. Just yeah. so sad because, and that's, that's how we miss people. Yeah. And once you get to that point, it's, it, again, it doesn't make logical sense. And this isn't the health worker's fault. It's the lack of funding and capitalism. Et and just, and just the system and how it's built. Yeah. You know. Oh, neoliberalism. So <laughs> it's, it's being like, you're responsible for yourself. Like you're yep. responsible for your health. You need to do everything alone, which is why people like, and that seeps into people. And so that's why people are like, I don't want to talk about my feelings because it's a burden, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But then what happens when people do that is you get really sick and then it's at a point where it takes a lot of work and a lot of resources and support to bring you back from that Mm. so it's a huge it's a huge waste both of someone's life but also the ability like the amount of money and resources it would cost to intervene early in that if someone is told that they're able to present with an issue when it's still small Mm. would mean that 
they wouldn't um, get to that point. Yeah, you wouldn't yeah. get to that point. That's a yeah. It's it's I guess it's all about like short term versus long term. And unfortunately, within a lot of systems in our society, it's all very short term. Yeah, and there's no like forward planning. That's why yeah. we're very intervention, not prevention. Yeah, which is very frustrating. And you're right. Like, it's it's almost the same. Like you know when you've kind of like you're sick and you're it's like say it's like nine o'clock at night. And you don't really think you should go to the emergency room, but at the same time you're like, I'm pretty sick, so I probably should get some medical help, but it just doesn't exist. Yeah. Or you've got to like wait for the night doctor. Like it's the same thing. Like there's there's no middle ground. You yeah. either have to be like just kind of just really nicely depressed, so you just go to the doctor, yeah. get your prescription, you set, get your mental health plan, that's it. Or you have to be literally at the yeah. other end where you're experiencing you psych- psychosis or the beginning exactly but we don't teach people that they should go at the start we're, no like where we punish people for taking themselves seriously and being able to um and being able to make that move when it's not really really bad mm. some people feel like they don't deserve it until it's at that point exactly but i think a lot of people myself included kind of had like a safety like in the back of my mind I was always like well like I'm not that it's not that bad like Mm. it's so much worse for so many other people but I know that like we all know the line to call we all know that like this is what you do in those situations and so if I ever got to that point I know exactly what to do and you just do it Mm. and then it works and then you do it and like both for chronic pain and for mental health you go to the emergency room and it doesn't work. No no one can help you. And you're like, wow, like I don't have that. And it makes mm. me really anxious when people do things that are positive in that really constantly talking about like you need to talk about what's going on, like I want you to share with me. But no one is really talking about what happens after that because yes. I get really nervous when people – on one hand I'm constantly saying to people like, if you're ever in a real crisis moment, like you need to to communicate that to people, and you do. Yeah. But I always felt so much more confident in saying that because I thought that once you do that, there's like some process, and there isn't. No. So now I'm more anxious having gone through it by myself, gone through it myself, not by myself. Drew went with me, <laughs> um, because if someone tells me that they're suicidal I can't tell them that someone can help yeah because you go to emergency and they send you home Mm. so it makes me really anxious about telling people that that they need to speak up in that situation because then they work up the balls to speak up and then they're going to have to experience that there's not really a lot that people Mm. can do yeah so like it's it's fucking heartbreaking yeah. when you realize yeah. that yeah you can be super unwell and there still isn't going to be a safety and it's because it net for you mental health and chronic health like it takes a lot of work to uh to fix or yeah. to make better yeah and that's not what that's not what we like so. Like, I can go to emergency in excruciating pain for endo, but no one will see me because it's a chronic health thing. Like, I'm not going to die. I'm going to be in more pain than maybe the person who sprained their ankle and is going to get in before me. But they'll take that person because they can fix it and send Mm. them home. Mm. They can't fix me. So they're just kind of like, well, that's it. Like, we can't really do a lot. And I think that is a really uncomfortable thing to have to know that, like, you're going to continue on and off for potentially the rest of your life to be in situations where you have to understand that you can't do anything for yourself, like you need help, Hmm. but know that it's not – that help's not going to really be there. Yeah. No, no, no. I get it. (laughs) It's like – it's very, I guess it's like very important to be obviously optimistic, but at the same time, to be realistic is also. Yeah, go to the hospital, kids. Super important. That's the thing. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't have the answers, but 
Although this podcast obviously... The revolution is the answer. It's coming. We well, need to overthrow the entire thing because <laughs> it's bleak. It's not It's not. It's not yeah. good. But I think the thing is with this podcast, obviously the aim of it is to get people talking and having those really uncomfortable conversations out in yeah. the open, right? But Yeah, sorry. I just kind of shut no, on that. No, no, no. <laughs> having said that though, um, I think what the government does is they take that they take that idea and they run... And they capitalise on it. Yeah, so they run things like Are You Okay Day. They fund like these really big organisations that probably don't actually reach that many people because when you think about the amount of overheads and the admin and like where is that money actually ending up at the end of the day. So yeah. we're investing money into all these kind of like campaigns and things like that that don't actually do anything. Yeah. Um, but it's easy. It's yeah. so easy and that's the thing. It's like... We don't want the campaigns. Like people like me can do that. Like let us let let people do that in their own communities and their own and the spaces. The thing is that stuff and give is us money. really helpful because again, that's allowing people to be able to talk about what they're feeling before it gets to that point. Yeah, definitely. So it's not like any of that is negative. It's no. all a really huge positive step, and it does mean that. You can now talk about mental health in your workplace. You can take a sick day about mental... You can talk to your friends about it. It's not... Like, it's absolutely come a really far way. And that has really helped people and changed their lives. Mm. And so none of that is a step backwards. It's just frustrating when you realise that all of that... All of that progress that we've made doesn't have help, structural help behind it. Like, I was talking to my dad... Um, after, um, like after I got out of hospital mm. and he was talking about how, um, like 30 years ago, 35 years ago when he was a carer for his mum, my, um, nan who had bipolar, the same thing would happen. He would notice that she was starting to get sick. He would, um, like at like 15 years old, take her to the doctor and be like, we need to do something. Like, this is getting bad. Mm. And they would refuse to do anything until she was completely off the deep end, not mm. on the planet anymore. Mm. And then that would mean she would have to spend three to six months in a psych ward, mm. which makes no sp- sense. That's no. spending so much money when they could have just adjusted her meds three months before when all the signs were there. And I was saying how similar it was to my experience in that there's no, like, there's no resources to be able to help people before they get to that point and he was like freaking out a bit like he was like I can't I can't believe that I've been watching young people make all these amazing strides at the way that they're able to support each other and not be like shameful and talk about mental health so openly and yet your experience trying to get the support that you needed and deserved was the same as it was in the 60s like Mm. that's terrifying yeah like we've had all this amazing movement which is has and i really believe has um stopped people from getting to that point yeah but for those who do get to that point none of that has translated into more resources to be able to provide that Mm. and yeah that's upsetting i agree (laughs) (laughs) It's fucking upsetting. Yeah. Um, look, we're nearly out of time. I could, I feel yeah, like I could sorry. talk to you. No, 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 I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours and I don't know, just like rebuild the world together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to focus, we'll finish on something a little bit more positive. Yeah. And that is what I ask everybody at the end of the episode. Um, in terms of like, if there are, I don't know, young girls out there experiencing, especially, you know, painful periods and chronic pain overall. Mm-hmm. Like what is some advice you would give them in terms of how they navigate the health system or just stuff like that you wish you could have known before you yeah. started? I think I've been thinking about this a lot recently because it's something I'm still struggling with. Mm. I have – I really struggle to accept like help from people and not just help but like active help. I think on one hand because I didn't really feel – validated in the extent of the help that I needed for so Mm. long because I was told otherwise but also just because I do internalize that like you know like I don't want to burden people like and so 
I really struggled to accept that from everyone, from my family, from my friends. The only way that I've been able to recently change that, and I wish I started working on that on this earlier, was that there's a complete disconnect between the way I show my love and care to my friends and the way I force them to accept it, <laughs> even if it makes them really uncomfortable. Yes. And the way that I um, convince them of, of convince them to accept that care and support and help that they need and deserve if they're in a similar position to me and that they feel very vulnerable accepting it, shout out to neoliberalism, or feel like they need to do it on their own or they don't want to burden people, is I really kind of, um, I really drill in, drill into them that I really want to, like it's not a burden, I, that's how I express like my love, like I see the values that I hold, I hold them very actively. So if I really care about someone, I feel uncomfortable if I'm not able to show it. And mm. the way that I like showing it is being able to do things for people, like, um, yeah, like help them. Like clean their house or yeah. like yeah. Know, make food. And I've been realising that I force <laughs> – force, it sounds like I'm um, a very aggressive friend, which I am, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but I really – um, don't accept when they won't uh, allow me to do that. Yeah. Because I know that they need it and I know that the only reason they're not accepting it is because they feel like a burden or they feel really vulnerable. And yet, and it takes a lot of work to be able to get someone to a point where they can trust that you actually really mean that and they can allow you to come into their space when they're really vulnerable and help them when they're not doing good and there's nothing that they can there's nothing that they can offer you in that moment mm. um and yet I don't allow people to do that for me and I the only way that I've been able to kind of uh work on that is to look at that it's really disrespectful <laughs> for me to do that it's really disrespectful for me to um just assume that because I think that that's how the world should work, that if you love someone, you show that intuitively and actively and consistently, mm-hmm. and it's not a chore, and it's part of, like, it's community, it's part of what the point of existing is, and it's it's not hard work. But if I don't allow people to do that for me, it like, people will stop trusting that because it doesn't make sense. So it's not a very, like, it's not a very grounded value. If you can't let it exist in all aspects of your life and you mm. can't let it come back to you, you're kind of saying, like, I have this value and I half act it. And I think that the people around me deserve to, to be able to reciprocate the, um, the trust that that they show me when yeah. they allow me to do that. Yeah. And I think my inability to accept that from people and to honour and believe and trust them when they say that they want to come over and um, make me dinner while I don't speak to them or they want to do these things for me and I don't let them, mm. I'm, yeah, I'm. it's disrespectful. <laughs> like, And it's not, it's not, um, honoring that we've shared that, yeah, that value. Um, and I think if I'd allowed people to or become more comfortable with allowing people to do that for me earlier, I think I probably wouldn't have got to that point. And I'm very lucky in that I've always had people around me who really want to do that stuff and always offer it, but I don't let them. And yeah. I think that, um, one, it doesn't make sense because it's not what I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that it's even possible to go through hard times and do it on your own. But it also means that I'm not really being true to myself because that's not what, that's not what I believe. Mm. So if I'm not, um, letting that belief, um, 
into all aspects of my life. I'm mm. not, um, yeah, it just meant that I was, got sicker for longer, more mm. extreme, and that support was always there. Yeah. And I, I didn't allow it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that affects not only me and my ability to get better, but it affects the extent that you're able to honor other people's love. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been helpful. Lately. So you feel like if young people out there could take that into consideration, yeah. that would be good. Like don't, don't allow yourself to believe that you need to do it by yourself. Mm. Um, because one, it's not possible. Um, and two, it's gonna, if you allow people to do that, you're going to have better, deeper, more trusting, um, safe relationships. And you're probably not going to get as sick yes. because you're not going to be as alone. Um, and like, that's a choice. And we think that, um, and we don't take it as seriously as we should mm. because we're taught that it's like the better choice to make. Yeah. Um, but it's not because it fucks ever, everyone over in the end because you get sicker, your friends, get more worried mm-hmm. about you. Um, yeah. So if you give help, you have to be ready to accept help. Yeah. I love that. That's yeah. beautiful. Thank Rose, you. Rose, thank you so much for being on the show. You've just been so inspiring and, and fun oh, to talk to. I don't know. But thank you. <laughs> thank you, guys. Thank you. It was so good. Really? Yes, you did so well. <laughs> great was Rose. Such a good way to kick off season two. I hope you found her as engaging and lovely and hilarious as I did when I got to interview her. Um, I think it's really important that we look at chronic pain and how that intersects with mental illness because, because, because our bodies and our minds are interlinked. It's really important to think of them holistically and not just separately. So thank you, Rose, for doing such a brilliant job at telling your story. Guys, a little bit of a social media spiel while I've got you. Uh, please like us, comment, interact with us on Facebook, Instagram. Just type in if you don't mind and you will find me. If you are interested in supporting the pod, you can head to Patreon and type in if you don't mind. And you can give as little as $2 a month to help this keep moving onwards. Um, I would just like to say a thank you to everybody from last season who shared their story for making season two possible. And I can't wait to continue this journey with you all this year. Uh, As I always say, be kind to yourselves, be kind to one another. And if you can listen to someone else's story, because it really changes you for the better. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.